Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Now, last Sunday evening, Pastor Greg said he may throw stuff at me, so I'm going to set this over here. I'll put this here just in case. Kind of like some security right here. But it's amazing. Last Sunday evening, Romans 3, we're going to start in verse 21. It's, it's awesome because last Sunday as I listened to Pastor Greg speak, a lot of what he said correlates with what I'm, talk, what I'm going to talk about this evening, as well as what he talked about this morning. A lot of it connects. I'm going to be taking it from different angles than Pastor Greg did, but it's amazing to see how God works through his people, through his message, that it all comes to one unified theme. It's kind of like if somebody invited Pastor and Greg and I to go cook in the kitchen for Thanksgiving. I know that's a scary thought. <laughs> Pastor Greg and I in the kitchen cooking together. Something would probably light on fire pretty quick. But say we were in charge of making the stuffing. So Pastor Greg brings some recipes and I bring some recipe to make the stuffing. And we come, we come with it with different recipes but we create the stuffing. And that's how God's word is. It all interrelates. And it's like the fabric. It's like a canvas. And God's redemptive, his story of redemption is like a canvas and it all interrelates. So you'll see some themes that are very similar to what Pastor Greg's talked about, but just in a different way. That being said, Romans 3, starting in verse 21. We're going to go to verse 24. So Romans 3, 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this, this passage I'm talking about tonight, we, we tend, to, tend to not really pay attention to it once we become believers because it's one of those passages where we think, oh, we've already graduated past that. We don't need to hear about this anymore. We're, we're believers now. And it becomes so common to us that we don't come back and refresh our mind of where we came from and what you've done for us. So help us open the eyes of our hearts and our ears tonight as we look at this afresh and anew tonight. And I thank you for the tech guys who keep the microphones going, who keep the music going. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who like seafood. And I like my brothers and sisters who for some reason don't like mayonnaise. There's so many things to be thankful for. Please give us, open our hearts to the word tonight. In your precious name, amen. It was August of 1942, the beginning of one of the largest and bloody battles in the history of warfare, the Battle of Stalingrad. Over 280,000 soldiers descend upon the city. The most powerful air force that the world has ever seen, the Luftwaffe. Within 48 hours, they've dropped over 1,000 tons of bombs on the city. 
Entire factories desolated, just rubble. Buildings completely destroyed. And in the midst of this, civilians are trapped. They're held captive by the bombardments and the attack of the German war machine. The Red Army, things look helpless for them because they're fighting against a much superior firepower. So things look hopeless. Things look bleak. But the Germans overlooked two big things. The Russians overlooked two big things. The Germans overlooked two big things. Number one, it gets really cold in Russia. If you're complaining about 36 degrees in Santa Maria being cold, that's not cold. Sub-zero temperatures fighting, that's cold. So it was cold, and the Germans didn't learn that 100 years ago, Napoleon had the same issue. And that was the fall of Napoleon, was trying to go and attack Russia. The second thing they overlooked is the persistence of the Russians. The human resources that the Russian, the Red Army had was unlimited. They kept bringing troops in from the Volga River. They constantly were coming in and coming in. As, as the Germans were sh killing and killing and killing, the Russians kept coming. At the end of the battle, it's an estimated one million Russian soldiers were killed in the Battle of Stalingrad. It was November of the same year that the Russians, after being dug in and fighting back against the Germans, they launch a two-pronged attack. They launch an attack against the flanks of the German Sixth Army, and eventually they surround the German army, and now the German army is held captive. They eventually kill off many of the Sixth Army and take many prisoners. It's the first time in the history of the Germ German, in the history of World War II, that an entire German field army was destroyed. Most historians will tell you that that victory in Stalingrad, that the Battle of Stalingrad, was a major turning point in the history of the war. Our passage tonight, Paul gives us a major turning point in the history of redemption. But now, the cross. See, Paul starts in verse 18 in chapter 1 of Romans. He says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That God created things for people to look at and worship the creator. That mankind turned away from God and worshiped creation instead and they fell into all sorts of sin. And then the Jews, he has the Jews in mind because the Jews are probably pointing their noses at the, the pagans and they're saying, yeah, they're doing all this stuff. But then Paul turns it around on them and he says, you who judge, you practice the very same things. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's in the same situation. For by works of law, nobody will be justified in his sight. But now... It's the major turning point. And God launches a two-pronged attack against sin and death. He delivers up Jesus Christ on the cross for our trespasses. And he raises him for our justification. It's God's mission, which looks impossible, and it is without God. And God's mission has always been plan A. In the passage here, Paul says that the law and the prophets bore witness to it. They bore witness to something. And when the Apostle Paul says the law and the prophets, 
He's talking about the entire Old Testament. See, the prophets, they implored the people of Israel. As you go through the Old Testament, they implore them, turn back to God, turn back to God. And then the law shows that nobody can be righteous before God on their own. And to be righteous means perfect obedience to the law. And when Paul talks about the law, he's not talking about the, just the ceremonial laws that separate Jews and Gentiles. He talks about the entire law, which includes the moral law. Because when Paul's talking in Romans 2, chapter 2, he says that the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So mankind, the law shows that mankind cannot be right before God by obeying the law perfectly. Something has to be done. Something outside of ourselves has to be done. And the law and the prophets testified to that. They pointed forward to something. And it's nothing new. It's always been plan A that God's going to save his people apart from the law. Psalm 143.2 says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So something outside our, of ourselves needs to be done. And it's been nothing new. It's always been God's mission. It's always been plan A from the beginning. At one point in the Battle of Stalingrad, the German 16th Panzer Division was going into the town. And they started fighting against an, a regiment of the Red Army the 1077th Regiment. And when they finally overtook the positions, something was manifested, something became visible to the German soldiers. The regiment was, it consisted almost entirely of women. They were fighting against women because the entire regiment was almost all women. They couldn't see it initially because as they're fighting and the smoke's going and the bullets are flying, they could not tell. But when they overrun the positions, then it became they saw it. They saw the visual. Well, the righteousness of God has now become visual. We see it in Jesus. All through the Old Testament, we see that mankind cannot be righteous on their own. They cannot obey the law perfect. And so the law and the prophets, they point forward to something. They're shadows pointing forward. And we don't get a complete visual through the Old Testament. But now has become manifested. Jesus has come out of the shadows. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law was never intended to make us right before God. The law was always intended to show that we could never do it on our own. It was only to expose the sin. So the righteousness of God, the phrase the righteousness of God, what does it mean, the righteousness of God? It's an important phrase because Paul uses it four times. He uses it two times in our passage tonight, two more times up to verse 31, and then he uses it four other times in Romans. I would argue that the phrase righteousness of God is the entire theme, is, is the main theme of all of Romans. And so it's important that we talk about what does the righteousness of God mean? There's three main interpretations. Number one, it refers to an attribute of God. God's righteousness. Number two, a status given by God. So it's a strictly forensic. It's about man's status before God. God giving man a certain status before God. 
And then three, that it means the divine activity of God. This phrase is elusive all through the Bible, and so you can't really, these, all of these interpretations, they're not mutually exclusive. You can't just pick one and say that's the, only, that's the only way we can define it. And it's also not fully exhaustive. So what you have to do when you're trying to figure out what does this phrase mean is you first go back to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament doesn't have an exact phrase, righteousness of God. But when it, you have to look at where righteousness is associated with God. In the most number of instances, when it refers to righteousness and is attributing it to God, it's refer, referring to his saving activity, his salvation. So when we get into the New Testament, you've got to understand the Apostle Paul is an expert at the Old Testament. And so he has that framework, God's saving activity, as he gets into the New Testament. So then we also want to look at, if he uses it eight times in Romans, how does he use righteousness of God? Well, he, first of all, he uses the word righteousness through Romans. He always ties it together with faith. He always links it together with faith. So now you're starting to see human, the human side, coming into the equation. So you have God-saving activity through the Old Testament. You have human response, faith, coming through. And then you have the immediate context where it's used four times, where it's, come, it's talking about a righteousness that comes outside of ourselves to us, a righteousness from God. That being said, my, I, I went with Douglas Moo's definition out of his, uh, out of his commentary to Romans because I think it encompasses the, the best. He says that the righteousness of God is the act by which God brings people into right relationship with himself. God's mission is the act by which God brings people into right relationship with himself, in which he reconciles man to himself. Because it doesn't exclude the wrath of God, because if we're not brought into a right relationship with God, we're still under wrath. It's not saying there is no wrath for the people that are not in a right relationship, but it's talking about the saving activity, the emphasis of the saving activity and the faith. God's saving activity was at work in the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. It's always been God's plan A. And God's mission has always been through faith. Faith is the vehicle that God uses in his mission of salvation. It is the tool used that brings us into the right relationship with the Heavenly Father. God has always used the vehicle of faith through history. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. The people in the Old Testament were saved the same way that the people of the New Testament are saved, through faith. And when Paul quotes back to the Old Testament, which he does often, when he talks about faith, he'll quote back to the Old Testament, Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting back to Habakkuk 2.4. And then when you get into Romans 4, he talks about Abraham and how before Abraham was circumcised, he was counted as righteous. He was declared righteous, counted a, a positive righteousness was counted to him because he believed. And so Paul's tying it back to the Old Testament. The vehicle of faith that God uses on his mission, that's always been plan A, has always been through faith. It's always been through faith, and he always quotes back the Old Testament to show that it's been the same. The first epistle of the Clement of, uh, of Rome, it's called the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, which was by Clement of Rome. 
who tradition says Clement of Rome was, was who Paul was talking about in Philippians when he talks about Clement. So you could probably say, you could, it'd probably be safe to say that they were probably homeboys. <laughs> he was back during that time. He wrote this epistle, AD 97. And he says this in 1 Clement 32, 3-4. They, referring to the patriarchs of the Old Testament, all therefore were glorified and magnified, not through themselves or their own works or the righteous doing which they wrought, but through his will. And so we, having been called through his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works which we wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith, whereby the Almighty God justified all men that have been from the beginning, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Now we're talking about faith, the vehicle of faith, so we need to talk about what is faith. Is faith some kind of jump, some kind of leap into nothing, where we turn off our minds and we don't think? Is it opposed to reason? Not biblical faith. Biblical faith consists of several aspects, and you have to have them together for it to be biblical faith. One, it's a knowledge of truth. I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross and he was raised a third day, which can be, can be proved historically, though secular society won't tell you always, but you can prove it through historical documents. So I, I, I see that. There's the knowledge of the truth that he did, that Jesus Christ walked the earth, that he did die on the cross and rose on the third day. So that's the first, the knowledge of the truth. The second is the assent to the truth. That's an agreement to the truth. Yeah, I agree that Jesus Christ died on the cross and then he was raised again on the third day. But if we just sit there, we just are at a mental level of faith. And if that's all you have, then you most likely have a dead faith, as James says. Because even the demons believe that God is one and they shuddered. So there's another aspect we can't forget. And that is an act of trust in that truth. It's an act of trust. Trusting in God's promises. Greg Stuckel from Stand to Reason says, Faith is taking your life and putting it on the line based on your confidence in those facts. And he uses this analogy. You see this guy who's taking a wheelbarrow across a tightrope, across Niagara Falls. And you see him do it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. So you know the truth that this guy can do it over and over and over again. You've seen that. You know the truth. But then one day he comes up and he asks you, do you think if you got in this wheelbarrow that I could push you across safely? Yes, I agree that you could probably push me across safely because I've seen the truth that you can do it hundreds of times. And I agree. I assent that you can do it. And then he asks you, so get in the wheelbarrow, and I'll push you across. That's the act of trust. It was John Owen who said that we are justified by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. What he's saying is faith. There's something that results from biblical faith, and that's obedience. And that is works. It's a result of it. It's not the foundation of our salvation. It's a result 
of it. So we have an active faith. Faith is active and it's living. Biblical faith sets something in front of us, an object in front of us. We're not saved strictly by faith. We're saved by the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. We have this object in front of us, Jesus Christ, and we trust in his finished work, not our own. It's an act of trust, and that's why we go out. We love God, and we love our neighbors, because our faith is not a dead faith. We trust in God's promises. And Paul mentions faith twice in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith, first time, for all who believe, second time. For there is no distinction. Paul wants us to understand that God's mission, that he uses faith, the vehicle for his mission, through faith, he doesn't make a distinction between Jew and Gentile, American, French, African, whatever it is. He doesn't make a distinction for all come to God the same way, through faith. All are saved the same way through faith. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or if you're Gentile. Because before God saved us, we're all in the same boat. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Before God pulled us out of that rubble, the wreckage of our lives, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were all in the same boat. We were all under the wrath of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Many of us, we memorize that verse, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And we don't really think through what does falling short of the glory of God mean. We understand easily that we're all under sin, for all have sinned, but what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? <coughs> Simply put, it means that we don't give praise where praise is due. We don't give praise to God who deserves the praise. And we fall short of that. See, Paul in Romans 1, he created all things for his glory. He created all for his glory, for his praise. But then we turned and we praised the creation rather than the creator. And we do it now even as believers. It's called idolatry. John Calvin said our hearts are factory idols. There's a factory of idols. They're always spurring forth idols. Whenever we put something above God, whenever we give something more weight, more glory than God, we're failing to give praise where praise is due. We make something that's good in itself, money, sex, career, relationships, and we make them ultimate. We're failing to give praise where praise is due. We're falling short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anytime we look for something other than God for our ultimate hope, our ultimate satisfaction, we're worshiping something else. We're praising something else. And he deserves to be much more glorified than we could possibly ever give him. And that's why we put an act of trust in somebody else who gives him the praise that he deserves because we don't always do it. It's all through Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. But it's so easy for us especially as believers, to erect these buildings of works. Well, I, I memorize scripture five times a day. I have my Bible studies 
five times a day. I go to church four times a day. We're constantly building these up as if we had something to do with our salvation. But then God comes by like a thousand tons of bombs, drops them, and he just create, demolishes our buildings of works. And he says, I have done it all. All of it is a gift from me. God's mission's always been plan A, and it's always been through faith. The reformers are adamant to make sure that we understand where we came from. They say that Romans and Romans Paul magnifies sin so that we magnify God. God's saving activity, it's all God. We tend to forget this as believers. Paul made sure to show that we stand apart from Jesus under the law, that we were all under sin, we're all under the same boat, and that God came and rescued us, pulled us from the rubble. And now God raises us from the rubble, rubble and he rescues us. God's mission liberates captives, but at a cost. I was a freshman in high school, and we were watching TV in the classroom, and we normally don't watch TV, but this was an important event. There was tension in the room, because the final verdict of the O.J. Simpson trial was about to be read. Now, we all thought we knew what the verdict was going to be, but then the verdict comes out, not guilty. And we cringe. We think, how could this be? But who am I? Who are we before Jesus rescued us? Before God pulled us out of the rubble? Enemies of God. Hostile to God. And in spite of us being enemies, God rescued us. We're all, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And But because of Jesus, when we should be standing in front of the judge at judgment day, and the verdict should read, Paul, guilty, because of Jesus Christ, now the verdict says, not guilty. It's nothing that I did. It's all the work of Jesus. We've been acquitted of our guilt. That's what justified means. We've been acquitted of our guilt, and we're declared righteous. The verdict should read, guilty, but it reads not guilty now. We've been justified by his grace as a gift. We've been declared righteous. It's a gift. Nothing that we did. And for us, that gift is free. But it came at a cost. We've been justified by grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ. It came at a cost. During World War II... There's a man by the name of Oscar Schindler. And I'm sure many of you have seen Schindler's List. You would know pretty much about his story, about what he did. But here was a man that had suitcases full of money. And he was out to make lots of money. That was his goal. And he slept around on his wife. He was a playboy, had lots of money, and he just partied all the time. But he saw what started happening to the Jews. He saw it with his eyes. It became vis visible. And then he started spending that money to get Jews out of the concentration camps and put them into a factory. He started spending them to liberate them from captivity. 
They were captive in these concentration camps to an imminent death. And he liberated them. He was rich. Then he became poor in the end by liberating these Jews from captivity. Abraham Zuckerman, a Holocaust survivor, said this about Schindler. To me, he was an angel. Because of him, I was treated like a human being, and because of him, I survived. What people don't understand about Oscar is the power of the man, his strength, his determination. Everything he did, he did to save the Jews. Can you imagine what power it took for him to pull out from Auschwitz 300 people? At Auschwitz, there was only one way you got out, we used to say, through the chimney. Do you understand? Nobody ever got out of Auschwitz, but Schindler got out 300. He was rich, but he spent the money to liberate them from captivity. I think you know where I'm going with this. Jesus Christ was rich, but for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. It's through his blood on the cross that he liberated us from the captivity of sin and death. He bought us back from captivity. He was our ransom when we deserved to die. He was the great exchange. Jesus Christ bought us back. We have been redeemed. We have been justified by grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ. It's all a gift of God. But in order for God's mission to liberate us, it did cost him something. Grace is free to us, but it's a great cost to God. So God's mission has always been plan A, from the beginning. It's always been through faith. It's always been to liberate his people from captivity at a cost, his son Jesus. The Third Reich was a far superior military power than the Red Army. And as they're shelling the city of Stalingrad, as they're holding the civilians captive within the city, things looked hopeless and things looked bleak. But then the Red Army launches a two-pronged attack against the German army and eventually surround them and destroy the Sixth Army. It's a major turning point in World War II. But now, the Apostle Paul gives us a major turning point in the history of redemption. But now, the cross. God launches a two-pronged attack against sin and death. He delivers up his son Jesus for our trespasses. And he raises him for our justification. It's always been God's plan from the beginning. It's always been plan A. It's always been through faith. And it's always been to liberate, liberate his people. It's why the reformers, these great truths, are why the reformers are willing to die for the solas. By grace alone. By faith alone. Through Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. It's God's mission. And if God was not there, the mission would be impossible. But thankfully, God is there. And God's mission will be fulfilled in the end. And I thank him for that. May we always remember that it's always been God, and it's all been a gift from God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
again, this is one of those passages where we, we tend to get away from this one because we think that we've graduated past, many times think we've graduated past this, that we're, that it's just something that uh, we just memorize in the beginning and we don't need to discuss it anymore. And I, I just hope that that's not the general attitude. I hope, I hope we keep coming back to this and we understand these truths and we keep coming back to this and coming back to this in fresh light of what you've done for us. Your mission that's always been from the beginning. It's always been plan A. And it's nothing that we did, that we don't trust in our own works, but we trust in Jesus' works, his perfect obedience. That is why the verdict will read, not guilty, because of your son, Jesus. I thank you for everyone here tonight. May we go out in our faith, not just be a faith about knowledge, about facts, but that is also an active and living faith, that we bless others as you have blessed us. In your precious name, amen.